electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Here's what's ahead. A tug of war in Washington causing a tug of war on Wall Street. The battle over a new stimulus plan has investors on edge with key areas of the economy awaiting aid. We've got the latest with the House leader and the Treasury secretary speaking right now. Plus, as tech dominates the markets and IPOs take off, are we headed for 1999 all over again? Goldman's tech portfolio manager gives us three reasons why he thinks this time is different. And the betting play, Playboy files for a SPAC and Viva Las Vegas. That's all ahead this hour, and it's not related. Don't worry. But we begin with today's market. Seema Modi is here with those numbers for us. Good afternoon, Kelly. Three hours left in trade. Stocks are higher to kick off the fourth quarter and the month of October. But we're off the highs of the day. The Dow was higher by 259 points. We're currently up 107. The S&P 500 higher by six-tenths of one percent. The Nasdaq, though, leading again, up around one percent on track for its second Second uh, weekly gain. Take a look at the home builders because that encouraging data on the housing front over the last couple of days continuing to fuel the home builders. The ETF that tracks them actually notching a fresh all-time high today. And take a look at this year-to-date performance. The ITB fell harder than the broader market during the March sell-off but rebounded much faster. It even widened that gap in September for a six-month winning streak. Here it is again. And you can see Still a nice gap between the housing sector and the S&P 500. Now on to some of the big winners in the consumer tech space. We're looking at Pinterest at another all-time high today, up another 6%. Etsy uh, now just 7% away from its own record high. And let's get a check-in on Palantir here. It's been kind of wavering between gains and losses, just flat right now, uh, just below that $10 opening price. Kelly, back to you. All right, Seema, thank you very much, Seema Modi. Now, the battle over the fate of another COVID relief bill continues today as both sides stand their ground. House Majority Leader Nancy Pelosi and the Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin are meeting right now to try to hash things out. Let's get to Elon Moy, who's got the latest on this developing story for us. Elon? Well, Kelly, their phone call should be underway by now, and tensions have been running high ahead of that conversation. The White House has said that Pelosi is not serious and not interested in their $1.6 trillion proposal. The White House instead is offering a clean bill to help the airline industry. But this morning, Pelosi made it very clear that she doesn't want to do piecemeal legislation. Some of you have asked, isn't something better than nothing? No. It can be an opportunity cost that says we're rewarding the wealthy because they're wealthy. They're successful at the expense of the poor. We're not going to exploit the needs that people have in order to once again increase the national debt uh, to help the high end. You know, other areas of disagreement that she highlighted included the child tax credit, state and local aid, as well as enhanced unemployment insurance. Kelly Mnuchin had said that we would know by today whether or not a compromise is within reach. I will keep you posted on what I find out about how their conversation goes. Back over to you. 
Absolutely. Please do. We can see the markets following it tick by tick, Elon, as well. We appreciate it. Elon Moy. And that battle on Capitol Hill is leading to a battle between the bears and the bulls today. The Dow already having its gains. We're now up less than 100 points. And this follows quite an up and down week. The Dow was up 410 on Monday, down 130 on Tuesday, then up 329 points yesterday. So what will break the tie? Is it this uh, relief bill or not? For more, let's bring in Alan Boomer of Momentum Advisors and Craig Callahan of Icon Advisors. Gentlemen, welcome to you both. Uh, Alan, let me start with you. Is this a market waiting for a clear outcome on the COVID relief bill or is it other uh, more important, maybe not more important, but are there are there other forces at play here? Hi, Kelly. Great question. I think there's there's three things that are really driving the market today. I think the fiscal stimulus bill that's before the House is being negotiated with the Senate, that, that's a big one. Um, I think that there's a high likelihood that this bill does not get passed before the election. I think we'll know today. If they decide to vote, I think there's a high chance that there's a, 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 a no. If they decide to keep talking, and that's a good sign. So the, the stimulus bill is one aspect. I think the election is clearly a big one. And then finally, the vaccine is another big one. There's you know, high hopes for a vaccine that, that gets widely distributed this year. As that gets pushed further into 2021, that's another issue that's hanging over the market. Sure. Craig, what do you think happens if there's no COVID bill? We're, we're bullish. We find the market to be about 30% below our estimate of fair value. So we really don't, don't need the virus bill, the stimulus bill to be passed to, uh, to be bullish. We're bullish anyway. Craig, you guys, we, we talk a lot about fair value, and for most of the time that we've talked, the market has been below your estimate of fair value. I mean, when's the last time we were at or above that level? And in the meantime, you know, we might be 10 or 15% below, but as we see now, we've just dropped the 30% below by your estimates. So what makes you confident that we're going to close that gap? Even during the, the great 11-year bull market that ended in February, we never saw the overpricing typical of peaks. In this low interest rate environment, when you project earnings growing out, going out into the future, then discount them back to the present value, you get a, a high levels of, of valuation in this setting with a low interest rate. So we still see bargains out there. One more question, Craig, on valuation for the people who say, you know, look at the price to earnings multiple of the market or of some of these names, you know, were expensive by historical standards. Why do you look at it differently? There's, there's a big segment of the market where their earnings got hit this year, but they're projected to be back above last year's next year and then growing healthy from there. So I'm not buying today's earnings. I'm buying future earnings. And those are projected to get right back on a growth path starting next year. All right. So yeah, I know tech remains one of your favorite uh, sectors, but also the industrials and consumer discretionary. The industrials certainly a little bit less of a market favorite these days. Alan, I want to get your picks as well. I mean, where would you recommend investors be positioned right now? And, and does it depend on those three factors that you mentioned earlier? Yeah, I agree that I think the market can do OK without all three of those things going perfectly. But I think today is a, is a crazy environment in the sense that you've got five stocks that really dominate the index indices. And on the, there's a, I've never seen a bigger uh, amount of variation between the high P.E. stocks and the low P.E. stocks. So stocks I like right now would be companies that have really good dividend yields 
companies that are a little lower on the PE side in terms of valuation. A name I really like today is Verizon. Verizon trades at a PE of, of next year's earnings of about 12 times, and it has a dividend yield that's over 4%. You know, and to Craig's point, interest rates are low. That makes valuations a little bit different to analyze. But when you just look at how low the yield is on the 10-year treasury, a 4% dividend looks really good here. Yeah, 4%, 2% looks good. Any, anything these <laughs> days uh, seems to offer a little bit more value than the bond market. Thank you both guys, Alan and Craig. We appreciate it today on these markets. Let's hone in a little more now on the jobs picture, which remains pretty mixed. We had initial jobless claims edging lower to 837,000 last week. It's a continued but a very slow improvement. The airline furloughs, meanwhile, that could start today. If you include those, companies have collectively announced at least 72,000 job cuts just this week. And at the same time, Recruiter.com's September report says recruiters this past month have never been more bullish. With me now is Evan Sohn. He is the CEO and chair of Recruiter.com. Evan, it's great to have you back. And do you mean they've never been more bullish in this recovery or they've never been more bullish, period? Yeah, we were talking about it this morning and, you know, it's it's inched up from where we were last month to from 3.25 to 3.3. Now, this is still out of a 3.5 sentiment number. So we're still we're still pretty low in terms of uh, where we need to go to. Uh, but we're certainly seeing an uptick. Uh, I think workloads have never been higher. Um, and more importantly, when we looked at the impact of COVID on their activities, that's also down. That's down to now about 24.5% feel that COVID's having a direct impact on their activities. And that's down about seven points from where we were last month at about 32%. Evan, how can it be that at a time when we're getting more bankruptcy filings, more notification of permanent layoffs, this the pandemic feels to me like it's shifting from one that's largely temporary to, to unfortunately giving clarity on those areas where it may be more permanent, why do you think your recruiters are starting to say, actually, the pandemic's less of a factor? What's, what explains that disconnect? Yeah. So, look, if we look at their sentiment on workload from where they were last year, they're still about 30 percent down. So they still feel that despite the fact that their workloads are up, they're about 30 percent of where they were a year ago. And that's pretty significant. Um, and I think that uh, you, you're seeing an uptick in certain industries. Maybe it's uh, the, the IT industry and the computer software industry have taken a slight, a slight uptick from last month. Maybe that's due to those companies shifting from in-person to remote jobs. And we're going to start tracking uh, those roles that are in-person, those that are online, and those that are hybrid. So maybe last month we saw an uptick in the, the manufacturing sector. Healthcare still, still remains strong. Um, but look, our heart goes out to everyone that's losing a job. And keep in mind that the area that people use recruiters for are usually some of those more high-paying jobs. Uh, individually, mm -hmm. uh, certainly at the corporate level, we've seen a big impact on the, on the mortgage space, for instance. Let's talk about manufacturing because we got the ISM report this morning that was relatively strong, but a pullback from the strength that we saw last month. And some of the forward-looking uh, parts of it dropped a little bit more precipitously. So you guys are actually picking up on some bullish signs in manufacturing. And I wonder if you could talk about that and if you think it's sustainable. Well, you know, the, the answer is we are seeing this impact. And again, you look at where we are. Last September, we added 139,000 jobs last September, so September 2019. So even the most pessimistic reports have us adding five times that in numbers. So there's still a, a very long way to go, uh, but we're certainly going to see sectors that are hit harder than others. 
Do you think, Evan, and I, I'm asking you to really speculate here, but, <laughs> you know, since you got your ear so close to the ground, I do wonder. Um, it, a lot of the manufacturing demand that we've seen is being chalked up to restocking. You know, basically, there's been a big shortage of goods in some parts of the economy owing to the, the different nature of demand this year. Do you think that the manufacturing uh, employers that you talk to are looking for people to just kind of help with that restocking and that's it? Or are they kind of building out a workforce for a, a sustainable recovery? Um, you know, I, I think when I started looking at some of the, uh, we started looking at some of the online job boards and I was pretty surprised to see how many open positions there are that are full-time positions. Uh, there was one online job site, they had 7 million open jobs, uh, the bulk of which I think 6 million were actually full-time jobs. So I think that sort of help out role is the gig economy versus the, the real more permanent positions. Um, I think it'll be interesting to track. There's certainly a shift that we're seeing from the, the blue collar worker again, you know, and, my, and our heart goes out to everyone that's lost their job, but we have not seen yet an industry that said, gee, we, we came back and we hired people and now we're laying them off again. We still haven't seen that yet. Uh, I know there's a lot of talk of that second wave, uh, but I, I don't think the recruiters are really seeing that in our sentiment. And again, what we really measure is the recruiter sentiment. Yeah, no, I hope you're right that once you bring people back, you know, you keep them and it wasn't a false dawn, so to speak. Uh, Evan, thanks so much. I love the granularity as always. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me, Kelly. Evan Sohn on the jobs market. Coming up as we await word from Washington on the next stimulus bill, we speak with Representative Tom Reed. He is co-chair of the Bipartisan Problem Solvers Caucus, which helped restart talks this week. Plus, it took a pandemic. The retailer that just reported year-over-year -year sales growth for the first time in four years, this mystery chart will be revealed. And the tech craze with the sector outperforming, valuations on the rise, and a flood of new IPOs. Should investors worry we're headed for another bubble? We've got some answers coming up. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Tech looking to regain its footing following a big slide in September. But even with that drop, the tech sector is still up 28% year-to-date and investors are still bullish on it. Our CNBC fourth quarter stock survey shows 64% of investors believe that tech will lead the market next year, outpacing others like industrial and consumer discretionary. Between that and the flood of IPOs lately, are we in an environment precariously similar to the dot-com bubble in 1999? Joining me now is Brooke Dane, Portfolio Manager at Goldman Sachs Asset Management. He's the co-lead portfolio manager of Goldman's Technology Opportunities Fund, which is up 30% this year. Brooke, it's good to have you back. Do you see parallels here or, or not? Hi, Kelly, and thanks for having me back on. So, uh, you know, we do think we're in a very different environment now than where we were in 1999. Um, and, you know, a lot of that is driven by both the fundamentals of the companies and the valuations that we're looking at right now. So, 
Uh, while it's been a great time to be invested in tech, we remain very bullish about the outlook uh, across the intermediate term. Now, listen, I know we're nowhere near, you know, kind of the crazy, hey, this company was formed in two weeks and it's going public and it has no real business plan and, you know, the stock is up 100,000 percent. But there are some areas where you look and you say, okay, there are some uh, electric vehicle SPACs that feel like they're raising money based on a business plan. You know, there's all these new uh, types of IPOs and appetite for them. And the performance has been really solid. And the tech sector itself uh, has some companies trading at, you know, I mean, Apple most notably, it's like the biggest company in the world and its PE is basically the highest that we've ever seen. So how would you explain all of that? Sure. Yeah, so when we look at the market, first off, what we'd say is is that, you know, there's real lessons to be learned from how we came off the last bubble and, and how, you know, how stocks reacted and how investors should be positioned as we see it right now. There's clearly there are pockets of the market where the valuations are concerning and there's some speculative uh, activity going on. On the other hand, at Goldman, we're finding great opportunities to put capital to work in companies where we think the market is just, you know, underappreciating what's happening in the underlying businesses. We think that you know, as we've talked about before, there's a real wave of innovation that's broadening out beyond uh, the headline names that you see all the time, the big mega cap names or some of these new IPOs. We just think that there's tremendous opportunities. And, um, you know, we always are, you know, one of the great things about working on at Goldman is, is the, the clients that you meet and the opportunities you get to discuss what they're trying to do with their portfolios. And Effectively, they've trusted us with their assets, uh, and you know we take that trust very seriously. So we're always looking at the both the upside that we could generate from an investment, as well as the downside risk that's involved. Yeah. And you know, I think tell me um, about our process really is driven by that. Go ahead, sorry. Fair enough. No, absolutely. Tell me about Splunk and Palo Alto Networks, which are two of the companies that you think are worthy <clears throat> investments here. Why? Yeah. So both of those companies have a little bit of controversy happening right now that is creating an opportunity for investors uh, to take advantage of what should be, uh, you know, very solid fundamentals going into the next year at valuations are, are very attractive. So starting first with Palo Alto, or excuse me, Blunk, I guess is up on the chart first. You know, there's a company that's going through um, effectively two different business model transitions as we sit here today. So they're moving from a perpetual and term-based uh, business model into more of a subscription model. At the same time, they're moving uh, to cloud-based software as well. Both of those things are depressing near-term revenues, but are building up um, real value on their balance sheet and are going to lead to a much more predictable, sustainable business as we move forward. Similarly with Palo Alto, um, you know, there's a, a, when you look at the security market overall, uh, security is going through a transition where there's a new generation of security technologies out there. It's called zero trust. And effectively, the architectures that design the security paradigms in the old world are fundamentally changing. Now, Palo Alto has some great assets that are addressing the zero trust market, but at the same time, their core firewall business is actually proving to be resilient. It's just shifting from being more of a software model to, I mean, more of a hardware model to a software yeah. model as we see there today. So in both of those names, we find real and, opportunities and excitement in the businesses. And no, and it's a great explainer of how you can still find value in a market where people are eager to kind of lump it all in as, you know, fang and, and everything else. And I also think it's interesting we have to go, but you say that Another difference with the market now versus 1999 is if you took tech out of the picture in 99, the fundamentals looked okay. And I know you're much more cautious and skeptical about a lot of the so-called value parts of the market today and whether um, there is going to be value there. Brooke, we'll leave it there for now, but we look forward to chatting again soon. Thank you for your time, sir. Thank you.
Brooke Dane with Goldman Sachs Asset Management. Still ahead, we're not playing around. Playboy is filing for an IPO. We told you that it was an IPO mania this year. Of course, it's via a SPAC, and we'll get you all the details on that. Plus, Las Vegas is betting on a post-pandemic comeback. We'll tell you how. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Treasury Secretary Mnuchin are holding stimulus talks as I speak. We are going to bring you the developing headlines and discuss with the co-chair of the Problem Solvers Caucus coming up here on The Exchange. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a check on these markets right now. Dow was up 259 at the highs, down 22 at the lows. We're up 86 points right now, so uh, that's a third of a 1% gain. And the Dow is the underperformer today, opposite of yesterday. S&P's up half a percent or 19 points. NASDAQ leading the way once again, up 1.2%. And in terms of the sectors, it's all consumer today, consumer discretionary, consumer staples at the front of the pack, and communication services up there as well. Energy is the big laggard. It's down almost 3%. And that brings us to some of the individual movers this hour. We begin with oil, which is sinking today. It's back below $40 a barrel, rising COVID cases, dampening the demand outlook. And a rise in OPEC output last month is also weighing on prices. We're looking at a 4 to 5% dive in the crude price today. Meanwhile, Overstock is jumping after Wedbush added the stock to its best ideas list, saying they expect the company to report much higher sales for its third quarter. The stock is up 14 percent. And finally, DraftKings is higher with Needham initiating coverage with a buy, saying they're one of the leading beneficiaries of the growing online gambling market. DraftKings up another 6 percent. It's over $62 a share. Let's get to Sue Herrera now for our CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. A sunrise remembrance ceremony in Las Vegas on the third anniversary of the deadliest mass shooting in modern U.S. history. In total, 60 people have died from injuries sustained when a gunman opened fire on a music festival crowd in 2017. Yesterday, a judge approved an $800 million payout from MGM Resorts and its insurers to the relatives and the victims of the shooting. France's health minister is warning residents that Paris is on the brink of a partial lockdown after surpassing multiple safety thresholds. As soon as Monday, that region may be forced to close bars and limit other social interactions to help contain the latest coronavirus outbreaks. Visitors will be able to go inside the Washington Monument today for the first time in six months. Guests will be required to wear masks and purchase tickets online for specific time slots. 
And Jimmy Carter is celebrating his 96th birthday, making him the oldest living former president in U.S. history. And we hope he has a very happy birthday. You are up to date. That's the news update this hour. Kelly, back to you. All right, Sue, thank you very much. Sue Herrera. Still ahead, it's beds and bathroom supplies, restaurants, and a limp along to recovery. Scorsese and Eastwood joining forces and a less commercial Christmas, maybe. It's all ahead on The Exchange. But wait, there's more. The Exchange is also a podcast. Listen to your favorite parts of the show you might have missed. Sign up now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines are Leslie Picker, Brian Sullivan, and Kate Rogers. Welcome, everybody. And first up, shares of Bed Bath & Beyond are soaring after reporting its first same-store sales increase in nearly four years. Its online business surged more than 80% versus last year. Its in-store sales still fell by 12%. The shares today are up more than 30%, its biggest one-day gain ever. The stock has more than quadrupled since April, and at this rate, could be looking at its first seven-month winning streak in more than two decades, Brian. Well, a heavily shorted stock, by the way, so you get any kind of good news, you're going to pop it up. Listen, you remember that Seinfeld, maybe I'm old, where he makes a car reservation, but they don't have a car, and he's like, you know how to make the reservation, you don't know how to hold the reservation. And I feel like Bed Bath & Beyond has got some momentum, maybe some new customers. Now they've got to hold the new customers. They got them during lockdown. Can they keep them? That's the question. What do you think, Kate? So they do have a lot of new customers, to Brian's point, 2 million new customers in the period. And a lot of them were younger people who were buying things for their home because we're all at home right now. So to his point, I agree. They do need to hold on to them. But think about it. Everyone is working and doing school from home for the most part. You need things for the house. They have hand sanitizer. They have masks. They have things that we're going to continue to need uh, moving forward. And I know personally I needed to buy a folding table recently. I couldn't find one anywhere. Target, Walmart, nothing. So I think the more more the people need to just buy things for the home, they're going to be turning to different retailers because so many are selling out of things because so many people are buying more these days. Are we, do we have a national shortage of folding tables? We're going to have to add that to our out <laughs> well, of stock I, I, I have it's a long extra, story. I have my an desk extra is, folding table. I will send it my to you, My desk is back ordered. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I, I, I'm not having anybody one. over. We have Thank it as an you. extender on our dining room table. Oh, you did. Never mind then. I'm going to keep it. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. <laughs> Let's move along, shall we? Uh, Playboy is going public again. This time, in a, such a sign of the times, it's merging with the SPAC, a special purpose acquisition company. This deal values Playboy at just under half a billion dollars, about $415 million, and it will get a more than $100 million in funding. Existing owners will retain two-thirds control of the company, and after merging with the SPAC, which is called Mountain Crest, uh, the SPAC will become known as Playboy and trade under ticker PL. B-Y. Leslie, what do we know about this deal? So you can see there got a slightly positive reaction from investors in the SPAC. Of course, when these deals get announced, it's important to pay attention to the stock price of these SPACs to see kind of how investors feel because it's up to them to vote to approve or disapprove of the deal that they're 
they're signing. Uh, so Mountain Crest Acquisition Corp. It's also important when you look at these things to see who the sponsors of the SPACs are. Not all SPACs are created equally. This one is uh, managed by Su Ying Liu of Hudson Capital. Uh, fun fact, too, took a look at the prospectus for the SPAC. The entire board uh, is men. So I guess that's not too surprising. Yeah. But just kind of a... <laughs> I mean, come on. Uh, yeah. Data um, point as we're looking at this Brian, one. Brian, would you invest? Did you think this is a, this is a, a good business? I mean, I have no idea what their business is. I guess they're trying to get into lingerie and compete with Victoria's Secret as well. Obviously, the magazine has gone away. They're trying to become like a lifestyle brand, I think. But to Leslie's points, I mean, we've seen these SPACs. It's amazing. You can put in very little of your own money, leverage it up with other people's money, go public, re-leverage it up again. I mean, you could probably get a $400 million SPAC on you know, a couple million dollars of initial investment. I'm not saying that's what happened here, but we've seen that in SPACs in the past. At some point, you're going to be the last SPAC standing. Yeah. The music will stop. Whatever that <laughs> business made, foldingtables.net, I have no idea. But at some point, the SPAC music is going to come to an end. Of that, I am sure. There is a reason why you're seeing so, so many of these. <laughs> it's free money, basically. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like folding tables would be a little bit of a better business model. <laughs> Let's move along. Talk about a topic near and dear to Kate Rogers' heart. Uh, restaurant traffic and sales trends are on the road to recovery, but they're still down from pre-pandemic levels. In fact, a new report by the New York State Comptroller shows that as many as half of all New York City bars and restaurants could close permanently within the next six months. Now, earlier today, Speaker Pelosi said she and Secretary Mnuchin are not yet in agreement on how to aid small businesses, and she specifically called out restaurants. Kate, what do you think? So the restaurant industry at large via the National Restaurant Association has been pushing for a $120 billion restaurant recovery fund. They're saying that the industry at large really needs this. And when you look at the, the traffic and, and sales numbers, obviously they're starting to move in the right direction, but we still have a long ways to go, Kelly. The National Restaurant Association also says $165 billion lost in sales through July. I mean, 100,000 locations are closed. We don't know how many will be permanent, but we got that devastating report out of New York City today. I think we're going to see more of that to come. And, you know, the industry and I think also Democrats are really looking at more targeted aid for particular industries, including the restaurant industry, which really badly needs it. You know, small businesses are so important to every part of the country, and we want there to be yeah. a Main Street when this all is said and done. You know, that's what adds to the charm of so many places, you know, in the country and around the world. It's a huge, huge loss and something really, really needs to be done quickly because the longer we wait, yeah. I mean, more and more are just going to continue to close. Go ahead, Bri. How, how many people in positions of power making the decisions have ever owned or run a restaurant? I mean, that's the question. You know, Tillman Fertitta will tell you 65% of your costs are fixed, called the prime cost of a restaurant, right? Rent, insurance, utilities, basic labor that you need. You can cut labor a little bit, but if you have 30% capacity and 65% of your costs are fixed, you can't do it. Here's the thing, and I'm going to say something controversial, I know, all right? If you're old or vulnerable, stay home, take care of yourself. We're all staying home and wearing masks. But other, if you're open 25%, why be open at all? Maybe 30% with, with outdoor dining as well. I got no, no fear going to a restaurant. If, if you're vulnerable, go home. We've learned a lot about this disease as well. We're going to have 30 million people unemployed. If it's a hospitality depression as well, and we don't talk about the mental health issues. Yeah. Searches for suicide are up. All, alcoholism is up. Oh, Every, yeah. you know, I mean, there's a lot of things. We got to have hard adult conversations very soon. 
No, it's, a, it's an interesting point, Leslie, as well, because we're heading into a tougher season. You know, mm -hmm. over the spring and the summer and the fall, we all, I, I've been out almost weekly sitting outside, you know, at restaurants in this area. And mm -hmm. it's it's so nice to get out of the house and yes. to you and you talk to them and you say, how is it going? And they don't have the political clout that, say, you know, a an area dominated by big companies like the airlines or something else does. They relied on a lot of PPP loans, but as we know, that money's kind of run out. So everyone just wants some clarity, and they, especially this time of year. I wonder, Leslie, too, I mean, we, Kate mentioned those numbers. It's like scary stuff for New yes. York City, but they also have amongst the most stringent rules in the country. So you would hope that I mean, God, we hope half of the restaurants aren't going out of business, but certainly that in other areas that it's not quite so dire. It, see, it seems like they're going to need more help, though, obviously. Yeah, I've been in the city throughout the entirety of the crisis. And, uh, you know, it was it was eerie back in March and April where you'd walk down the street. I mean, even Starbucks wasn't open. You barely saw people on the street. These days, it's the complete opposite. People are eating in the street. They're drinking in the street. Uh, there's live music in the street. It's, you know, the city has kind of come back alive through the restaurant scene. Now, here we are, October 1st. You wake up this morning and you kind of have this reckoning of, okay, it's, it's actually fall. The potential for a second wave, if it's coming, is, you know, could be around the corner, coinciding with flu season. Everything that we've heard, you know, the doctors warning us about uh, for weeks now, you know, it seems to be, you know, closer upon yeah. us. And here we are. We don't have any answers for but these we're all, small businesses. But we're, we're on so how much to smarter. We're so, we're so much smarter than we were in March. Okay, we're 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 masked. We're socially distanced. Responsible people are hopefully acting responsible. College students aside, because every college student I know has no fear of it. They're actually trying to get it because they just want to get over it. I know that's a gross thing to say, but talk to a college student, and that I'm older than you guys. I know people that have college students. That's what they'll tell you in their private moments. The best stimulus is opening up for business and having people act responsibly, wear a mask. If you're vulnerable, don't go out. Wash your hands. Don't, you know, if you go to a restaurant, yeah. don't go out into another crowd without a mask on. Just be smart like they've done in Sweden. Sweden's fatality rate is, I think, at the same or below as ours. I'm not saying they're the perfect case because it's politically controversial to talk about Sweden because they had a lot of nursing home fatalities at the beginning, just like we did. We also got to look, guys, and realize we didn't have much of a flu season three of the last four years. 2017 was terrible. Mm. I, I'm not so sure we're going to have a – yeah, I, I'm going I'm to move on. They're telling me not, don't play doctor on the uh, – I'm researching a book, so I've got a lot of data <laughs> in my head. So back to you. <laughs> Oh, One no, point, you're doing Kelly, more than takeout works, right? Takeout yes, works yes, if you're 100%. not comfortable going right. and sitting in a restaurant. Go, that does help, too. Let's go from... Let's go from restaurants uh, to movies because it's kind of in the same vein. There's more than 70 directors and producers now joining forces with movie theater owners to ask Congress for financial help. The list includes Oscar-winning film directors James Cameron, Clint Eastwood, Martin Scorsese, and they say 69% of small and mid-sized movie theater companies will be forced to file for bankruptcy or close permanently unless they get help. So, Kate, just a quick word on this to kind of put a button on what we've discussed with the restaurant sector and with movie theaters, you know, you're, they're trying to band together to get more political clout. Is it going to work? I mean, listen, there's a push to help these smaller companies, right? In particular, the money's there. Not all of it got used during the last round of PPP. Small Business Roundtable says, hey, pass this separately. We need help. Uh, you're going to see it across industries, Kelly. It's really a reckoning right now, and it's only going to get worse until something's done. Yeah. And again, we await news this hour to see if these talks between Pelosi and Mnuchin yield anything. And the fact that she mentioned the restaurant industry as a sticking point uh, doesn't necessarily bode well.
Before we go, guys, we're only 85 days away from Christmas, and a new survey of 1,500 consumers by Accenture shows that shoppers are approaching this holiday season a little differently. No surprise. Uh, for example, about three-quarters of consumers want retailers to just close on Thanksgiving Day, let workers spend time with their families. 61% say they plan to minimize in-store shopping to reduce their health risks uh, and, and to reduce risks to essential workers this holiday season. Leslie, it's interesting because the message here is that it's going to be a less commercial holiday season. But mm -hmm. at the same time, we're also desperate to get out. You know, it's like we, you know, yeah. we all love our families. We've all been spending a lot of time with them. Um, it, <laughs> we'll see just what people come up with in terms of how to celebrate this year. You know, it's tough because it's it's hard to make plans for anything, quite frankly, especially the holidays, uh, especially if you have relatives who don't live in the same city or state or in within driving distance of you. Uh, so I do wonder if consumers will try and kind of replace some of the holiday traditions uh, by spending money elsewhere, kind of like what we saw uh, with the home renovation. People weren't spending as much money on, say, apparel or shoes, you know, nice shoes to wear to work. They were instead using that discretionary income to fix their homes. Do people, you know, spend money that they otherwise would have spent on, say, you know, airline tickets to go home? Are they spending that in, in other ways uh, for the holidays to try and yeah. find a different way to make it special for everybody? And Brian, going back to what you were saying Just, a moment ago, I mean, it, it is it's sad to contemplate, you know, when you can't get your extended family together for the holidays this year and you've got kids, you know, people just spending time by themselves, maybe they're already living alone, they just can't make the, the flight or whatever it is. I mean, yeah. that's, it's, it's sad. I, I, I really, it's, it, you want and need people to be able to come together for these big moments. All, all I'm, all I'm trying to say, and I'm sorry I got a little bit worked up. I get up super early, so I get a little tired and grumpy. All I'm trying to say, guys, is this, is that there is another side to this story. Mental health issues, drug addiction, families, bankruptcies. It's not just a zero-sum game. We have to protect the vulnerable population. We know that. And to your point, the holidays are a very difficult time for anybody who's struggling with addiction and mental health problems as well. We need to figure out a way that those people mm -hmm. are taken care of. I guess I'm just confused. You can go to retailers, but your kids can't go to school. You can't go to restaurants, but you can go to Walmart. You can go to McDonald's. I mean, it's, what, it's like we're picking and choosing winners and losers, and we all know families yeah. that are going to be bankrupted. Well, I'm not saying that's better than, than COVID. I'm just simply saying it's not just a one-sided story. I, I know that I've probably lost my mind, but whatever. We've all been cooped up too long. No, fair enough. Fair enough. We appreciate it all today. Thank you, guys. Leslie Picker, Brian Sullivan, and Kate Rogers in this edition of Rapid Fire. Coming up, those bipartisan talks for another round of stimulus are still ongoing, but at least one group reached agreement on a plan. We're going to speak with the co-chair of the Problem Solvers Caucus, Republican Congressman Tom Reed, about the future of their proposed stimulus bill. That's next. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in a couple. Welcome back to The Exchange. Still no deal on another stimulus package, but talks between Democrats and Republicans are ongoing with both sides currently on a call. A compromise bill from the Bipartisan Problem Solvers Caucus renewed COVID aid discussions. And in terms of the dollar figure, it started at one and a half trillion dollars with room to either increase or reduce funding. Joining me now to talk more about all of this, Representative Tom Reed of New York is co-chair of the Problem Solvers Congress. Uh, caucus. And Congressman, it's great to have you here. What is your expectation for uh, the passage of a COVID relief bill this year? 
I'm still optimistic because uh, the American people need it. Uh, there is still need for targeted relief uh, across America. And the good news is, is what we were trying to do in the Problem Solvers Caucus at its heart is show that you could have a bipartisan deal. And most importantly, to get the stakeholders back in the room. And with Steven Mnuchin talking with the speaker, uh, that is one of our ultimate goals. And they're having good faith, substantive conversations, is my understanding. And we're continuing to work with the White House. So uh, these are good signs that there's a compromise still yet to be had. We were just having this discussion, but I'm, what do you think the odds are of aid for the restaurant industry in particular and the movie industry as well? You know, I think there's a need across all spectrums, uh, not just particular industries like restaurants and uh, live venues, movies, what have you, airlines and others. But you, know, you also look at small businesses. You look at the individuals that have lost their jobs. And so that's why uh, this need is significant. And the Paycheck Protection Program also has shown success. We need another round of that. And uh, we need to get through uh, this uh, cliff because we're not going to get a deal, in my humble opinion, on December 11th because the chaos after the election is still going to be there and the animosity between the two sides is going to be greater then than now. Now is the time to do the deal. And we just encourage our leadership as well as uh, the folks in the Senate. Let's get this done because we don't know what's going to happen. And don't bank on the fact that after the election, you're going to be able to give relief to the American people because I don't see it. Now is the time to get it done for the yeah. people back home. What are the biggest sticking points, the areas uh, of aid where it's only one party or only the other who pretty much wants to move forward? Well, I, I don't think that's necessarily that's one or the other. But, you know, there's been contention about unemployment insurance that, uh, you know, people being getting more money uh, off of uh, work and on unemployment. Then also the issue of state and local aid obviously has been a contentious issue. But what we did in the Problem Solvers Caucus is say you can work that out if you actually listen to each other and come to a reasonable conclusion. And so I think we've demonstrated with 50 members, 25 Democrats, and I co-chaired on the Republican side with 25 Republicans, you can do it because we got well over 75% consensus to issue that Problem Solver Caucus seal of endorsement. And I, I will tell you, you can work through this if you put the American people's interests first, and that's what it's all about. How do you come down on the cost of, of this bill? I think even yours is a trillion and a half. So Tell me what you would tell those who say, can, the, can we afford it on the deficit front? What's it doing to the national debt? How do you kind of offset that bill uh, against the very great need right now? Yeah, I, I look at the, the long-term picture. I mean, obviously, I'm very concerned about the national debt crisis. Uh, I, I'm very concerned about where we are positioned ourselves in regards to $26 trillion in national debt. But I got to tell you, Doing nothing uh, has dramatic consequences uh, uh, in regards to what it's going to do for long-term damage to the economy with industries collapsing, with people going without. And so that, this investment I see as a necessary investment short-term. And then we look at what we did to rebuild the economy prior to COVID-19. You know, what President Trump did in regards to the growth that we saw, the huge amount of growth, we have the capacity and the productivity in the American economy to grow. And so we have to get through this crisis and then come out on the other side stronger. And then we'll take care of this deficit and this debt that clearly has to be addressed. Well, and that raises the question as well about who would be spearheading the economy for the next four years. Uh, as you mentioned, as that's in flux, so too is the fate of this bill. We'll see if we get anything on it today or this week. Congressman Tom Reed, thank you, sir, for your time. We appreciate it. It's good to be with you. Thanks so much. Representing the great state of New York. Casinos in Las Vegas were shut down for 10 weeks during the lockdown there, but Sin City is still betting on a recovery. Jane Wells is there for us today, and she talked to Elvis about it, Jane. <laughs> I did.
He's uh, he's lonesome, Kelly. Uh, look, I got a room last night for 65 bucks, and it was a nice room, but that's because it's midweek. Zero conventions. Weekend rates are coming up, a good sign. Next up, we talk to MGM Resort CEO and tell you what to expect if you visit Las Vegas when the exchange comes back. Welcome back. Despite no shows, no conventions, and casinos being only partially reopened, Las Vegas is betting on a comeback. Jane Wells is out there with that story for us today. Jane? Uh, Kelly, I want to show you what it looks like on Las Vegas Boulevard on a Thursday morning now. I'm getting way out of the way to social distance with Jacob here. I mean, take a look at that. Uh, wow. Uh, Midweek uh, visitation is down by more than two-thirds, mostly because there are no conventions. Zero. I think from a meeting and convention standpoint, we think that's about eight and a half billion dollars so far. Um, and we, you know, obviously that's going to double uh, by the time we get back fully open. Uh, but the convention center is continuing its billion dollar expansion. That is one big difference between now and the Great Recession. Big projects are not being abandoned. They have capital. Though MGM's uh, Bill Hornbuckle expects Las Vegas, the recovery here to be much more gradual than what he expects in Macau. I think look, 21 will be a year of recovery. Hopefully there's a cure in our near future. Um, it won't be mandatory, so we're just not as disciplined in that context as an environment and as a society. Um, but I think by end of 21, as we look into 22, this time next year, I think we're going to be hosting shows at T-Mobile. Uh, you know, I, I think we'll be back to normal. Okay, here's some video I took on a plane flight coming in. Probably a third full. Most people drive. If you do come here, you will have to wear a mask inside casinos. Get a temperature check of staying in a room. You'll see plexiglass between seats at poker tables. Constance cleaning of um, a slot machine services, uh, uh, slot machines, all that kind of stuff. You're going to see all that sort of thing when you come here. Um, and during the week, you won't have a lot of company. Yeah. No. And, Jane, you mentioned you talked with Elvis. What was that about? Uh, Okay, so the Viva Las Vegas Wedding Chapel here. I went over there. Rhonda Carr has owned it for 27 years. He's Elvis. Uh, while we were there, there was one wedding, a Darth Vader wedding, you know, which fortunately Vader always wears his mask. But the car says just his one small business has lost $1.2 million in wedding cancellations during COVID. And, you know, Bill Hornbuckle says, look, MGM Resorts is going to be fine. They, they can sustain this. It's the small businesses around here that everybody's really concerned about. It's a great point. And just because it's Las Vegas doesn't mean there's a ton of small businesses and a lot of Elvises depending on it. Jane, thank you very much as always. We appreciate it. Jane Wells in Vegas for us today. That does it for the exchange, but stick around for Power Lunch. Direct consumer healthcare brand HIMSS announcing it's going public via a SPAC. A HIMSS board member will join us to discuss that. I'll see you on the other side of this quick break with Tyler Matheson. Stay with us. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.